This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. The NWF Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Hunt to Eat, an inclusive hunting apparel company with a focus on community, real food, and conservation. Check out Hunt to Eat's NWF line, wild game recipes, and hunting and fishing designs at hunttoeat.com. And enter the code WILDLIFE10 to get 10% off your order. All right, welcome everybody to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is your host, Aaron Kindle. And today we are bringing you a very special edition. We got some excellent conservation news last week as something that we could truly be thankful for right before we had the Thanksgiving holiday. We heard that one of the biggest conservation fights we've had for the last decade reached a major milestone that we can all be happy about. The Army Corps of Engineers denied the permit for the Pebble Mine in Alaska and we're lucky today. I'm honored and I'm, I'm really happy that, that he agreed to come on to have Chris Wood uh, join us. He's the president and CEO of Trout Unlimited. And Trout Unlimited has been the key driver to getting this mine and, and protecting, getting this mine denied and protecting one of the most incredible places on earth, one of the best salmon fisheries left on earth. And so I just, I'm just honored that you decided to come, Chris, and, and thanks for being here. Oh, thanks, Aaron. The, uh, the honor's mine. It's great to great to see you again and to hear your voice again. Yeah, and Chris and I are old friends. I used to work at Trout Unlimited, so we've known each other for a while, and, and he's always been gracious with his time, and this is no exception. And I'll tell our listeners just, just a little bit about Chris, and then we'll dive in. So Chris, before he was at Trout Unlimited, he worked for the U.S. Forest Service as the Senior Policy and Communications Advisor to the Chief. And uh, 
he, he began his career way back when as a temporary employee in, in Idaho and has, has worked his way up through, through a couple of the agencies. He's done, uh, he's an author, he's done multiple papers and some books, and he's really just one of the leaders on, in stream restoration and conservation across the country and has been at the helm now for what looking like 20 years almost now, Chris. It's 10. At 10. TU. 10? 10 years okay. at the helm. Nearly okay. 20 at TU, though. Well, good. 20 years there and, and 10 years at the helm. So obviously you did something right uh, on your way up. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, awesome, Chris. Uh, first, we always like to ask our listeners what we've been doing outside. And I know it's a good time to get outside and be with our families because that's about the only folks we can spend some time with responsibly. So, so tell us what you've been up to. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, that, what you just said, spending time with my family. Um, in our case, at our, we have a place in West Virginia, and we're able to uh, leave D.C. and get to West Virginia without stopping or, uh, you know, interacting with anyone else so we can be safe there. And we, uh, we had Thanksgiving here in D.C., and I hunted um, the first three days of opening of, uh, of gun season in West Virginia before Thanksgiving. Passed on a few nice bucks in the hope that uh, I'll see something uh, better this weekend. And then the other thing that um, I've been doing that's of interest is we've been invaded by uh, this scourge called Russian olive or mm -hmm. uh, yeah. autumn olive, some people call it. And um, it's an invasive bush that um, just completely takes over a landscape. And so I've been having fun with my boys uh, with a chainsaw and some herbicide trying to get rid of that Russian olive uh, from our place in West Virginia. But how, how old are your boys now, Chris? They're, they got to be. Yeah, it's insane. Two, two of them are six, three. So two of them tower over me and they're, uh, they're 17, 15 and 10, 11, wow. 11. Wow. I bet they're beating dad on the basketball court now, huh? That's really funny that you say that. So, the two-on-two -two teams, we have a half court down in our place in West Virginia, and the two-and-two -two teams are Wiley and Casey, the two oldest boys, and then I play with Henry Trace, and Henry Trace and I consistently beat Wiley and Casey, oh, wow. not necessarily because we're better, but because dad still knows how to set a pick and plays defense. <laughs> the, other, yeah. the other three are just gunners. <laughs> Chris is a good ball player. We've actually played ball together a time or two. So Holy cow, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's jump in, Chris. Uh, I think I'd just like to give you the opportunity to tell people who don't know, what is Bristol Bay? What's at stake up there? You know, Just give us an overview of the people, the place, the wildlife. Just dive in and I'll ask questions as I, as I hear them. Right on, Aaron. Um, Bristol Bay is one of the most remarkable landscapes in the country, and I, I say that... Um, with great seriousness. You mentioned this earlier, but about half, nearly half of all of the world's wild sockeye come from the Bristol Bay system and, and largely the Quijack River system. Um, and uh, the, the most productive uh, Chinook or King run in the world is often uh, in the uh, an adjacent river system, uh, the Nushagak River. Um, and what, what a lot of uh, sportsmen and women really love about Bristol Bay is that the fact that they have these giant native uh, rainbow trout, these aren't steelhead, these are you know potentially 30, 31, 32 inch rainbow trout that move out of a giant lake called Lake Iliamna and they move into the rivers 
when the fish are spawning and they're feeding on salmon eggs and, and, and the decaying flesh of the bodies, et cetera. So as they get very, very big. These are giant uh, rainbow trout. Anyway, it was precisely in the headwaters of the Nushagak and the Quijack rivers that a Canadian mining company proposed building what would have been probably the world's largest open pit gold, silver, and copper mine. Um, it was a, a patently bad idea. This, is, this has been, in the, it was proposed about 15 years ago. The company took their sweet time getting a permit uh, developed. Uh, ultimately, the Trump administration forced them uh, to, to basically get a permit done within a time certain period. And the happy news, and, and frankly, the unexpected news that you mentioned was uh, the, the Corps of Engineers denied that permit. Uh, that they needed under the Clean Water Act to be able to build this massive uh, gold mine. Uh, so just a huge victory for conservation. You know, and it, what's really neat about this one, Aaron, is when you look at the history of the state of Alaska, most of the conservation in that state was kind of forced on it, uh, either by the White House or by the U.S. Congress. And yeah. what was neat about this campaign was not only did organizations like NWF and TU and, you know, Wild Salmon Center and other groups come together and work, you know, in a, in a, in a concerted way to try to stop that mine. Um, but the local opposition was phenomenal. In, in, in some of those Alaska native villages like King Salmon and Igiagig and Dillingham, the opposition to the mine was, you know, in the 80s, 85 percent, 86 percent around. And you know, as you know, Alaska is a very pro-development state. The opposition to the mine in the state ran in the you know, 60% range. And so it was a real, uh, a real demonstration of the power of building, uh, you know, local voices uh, to speak out for their lands and waters. And, uh, you know, we, we never would have won that fight without the support of, as I mentioned, groups like NWF, other environmental groups were involved. The uh, NRDC was very involved. But what really made the campaign so powerful was how the Alaska Native villages and the commercial fishermen came together and uh, you know organized with the conservation community. And we, you know, for 15 years we fought this absolutely boneheaded idea of a mine. And uh, by gosh, we beat it back. Uh, now we're not done. You know, we need it, it, some other scurrilous company could come along and 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 propose another mine up there, right? This. This doesn't protect the land in Bristol Bay. It just says that this mine cannot be built, the pebble mine. And so part of what we need to do now is we need to work with, you know, those Alaska native villages, the, the, the native corporations in the area, um, the state and the Alaska delegation to come up with a long-term solution that actually protects uh, the land and the fishery so that, um, you know, we don't have to have these kind of fights every couple of years. And these are you know, wilderness quality, world-class type lands that we're talking about too. I mean, grizzly bears, everything under the sun, right? Can you talk a little bit more about the other critters and things up there? It's incredible. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. You can't, this, this, the Bristol Bay region is about the size of uh, Ohio. It's a big, big region. And there's about 7,000 people who live there. It's a completely undeveloped landscape. I remember 15 years ago, before I had my knees replaced, I was still running. And I went to Bristol Bay for the first time, you know, I was training for a half marathon. And I remember going to Bristol Bay thinking, well, I'll be able to train when I'm not fishing. There's, there's, no, there's nowhere to run. There's no roads. Um, 
to get into the lodge I fish at, you fly into a tiny little town called Igiagig. It's a little more than an airstrip. And then you take a boat upriver to the lodge. I mean, this is a completely undeveloped landscape. And what they would have had to do to build this mine was to industrialize the landscape, literally. They would have had to build a, a power plant that is uh, larger than the one that uh, feeds the city of Anchorage. Um, they would have had to build these massive earthen dams, hundreds of feet high, uh, to hold back the toxic tailings that would have been produced by the, the dam. Uh, and this is in a highly seismically active area. Um, it just it was a recipe for disaster. And you talk about sure. wildlife. I mean, this this place is like it's America's Serengeti. Um, I know that's a, an overused cliche, but it, 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 grizzly bear, caribou. Um, I, you know, I have I have fished up there at a place called the Brooks Range, and that's where they cap uh, uh, my national park rather on the Brooks River, and that's where they. You always see those famous photographs of the bears at a, at a waterfall with their mouth open, yeah, and yeah. you know they trying to catch the, the fish as they jump. Well, there are so many bears there that uh, the guides teach you. It's actually not that fun to fish it. The first time it's just totally cool because bears everywhere. I mean, 10 bears to every person in the area. Uh, but the guides teach you when you hook up with a fish and a bear becomes a little bit too interested, you drop your rod straight down. Uh, so, so and maybe even break it off if you need to, because you know they really live in fear of the bears getting acclimated to the anglers catching fish and then, you know, oh, look, that fish is a little slower than the rest. I'm going to go charge after them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, it's a, it's, it's like no place on earth. It's a, it's just a, and you know, I, I went into uh, Iggy Agig two years ago, a friend of mine, uh, Brian Kraft owns a lodge up there, uh, Alaska Sportsman's Lodge. It's a great, great lodge. And we went in to see one of the local school teachers in the town of Igiagig. And what was so cool, Aaron, was, you know, kids, the kids, they, you know, they don't ride bikes to school like you and I might have when we grew up. They ride their ATVs to school. And what was so cool was seeing all these no pebble mine stickers emblazoned on these off-road vehicles that the kids were, you know, taking to get into class every day. Yeah, it's a really kind of community effort and community in kind of the broadest sense you can think of, right? It's nationwide, locals, people from all over, people who just care. I've never been there, but uh, I tell people, that, you know, you have me at hello. You tell me half the, half the world's salmon are threatened, and I just say, no way, no how. I mean, it's a no-brainer, right? I mean, Well, you, you think about it this way, okay? Put this in perspective. In the Columbia and Snake River basins, we have spent upwards of $18 billion in a dramatically failed effort to recover Snake River and Columbia River salmon. And all we have to do to keep intact half of the world's wild sockeye salmon, all we have to do is have the wisdom to leave Bristol Bay alone, to just leave it alone, to leave it as God made it, because we can't improve it. And, um, you know, happily, this permit denial leaves us in a good position right now to come up with a long-term solution, working with those partners that I mentioned, to, to do just that, to leave Bristol Bay alone. Awesome. Well, let's let's back up just one step too, Chris. Tell me, you know, when did this mining project arise? You know, what were the plans? Who who were the players? You know, just just walk folks through how this came about. It, you know, we sit here and talk about all the values, and it seems so obvious that, boy, why would you even try to mine that? Or as soon as you did, you'd be jumped all over. You know, just just. Take us a little bit through that history and, and how that came about. Yeah, happy to, Aaron. Well, 
I first learned about it 15 years ago. Um, we had a guy on staff at the time named Tim Bristol, and he said, you know, this this pebble mine that they're talking about, you know, has the potential to really be problematic. And my first instinct was pebble mine. Do we actually mine pebbles? Um, I literally didn't even, <laughs> I'd never even heard of the deposit before. Yeah. And um, I went up there and I met this guy named Brian Kraft. And he's, as I mentioned, he's the owner of the Alaska Sportsman's Lodge. And Brian told me that, you know, he was really worried and other lodge owners in the area were really worried about this, this mine. And, um, you know, he was trying to push to you to take it on as a campaign. And so uh, we did, we, 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 we learned about the, the, the proposed mine. We learned about what a devastatingly bad idea it was to build a mine like this in that kind of an area. And it was interesting because Brian, like many Alaskans was initially pro mine because, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, an area with a fairly low household income, as you could imagine, um, you know, jobs are important in those rural communities. And a lot of people like Brian initially thought that, well, this will be great. It'll provide, you know, good, high paying family wage jobs for people. And, um, but the more they learned about it, the more they realized, no, this is, this is a, this is a bad idea. So it was about 15 years ago that we got involved. It was largely based on, um, you know, uh, uh, the council of, of, of the lodges in the areas that in the area that we had relationships with, but then it blossomed into a, a tremendous campaign. The commercial fishing industry in the state of Alaska was fantastic. This is a, you know, a fishery like no other, they have a relatively short season, but they catch just a tremendous amount of fish. A couple of years ago, they caught 60 million sockeye salmon. Think about that 60 million wow. fish. And, um, and it's a totally sustainable fishery. Uh, papers have been written about the fishery because the incredible uh, diversity, the genetic diversity, the geographic diversity, and the life history diversity of these fish allows for them to be pounded, you know, pounded for a really intense two-week period. Um, but they still, they, they meet all their escapement goals and it's a completely sustainable fishery. There's no hatcheries involved or anything. This is, this is a... This is a fishery as God made it. And um, so if folks are eating sockeye salmon at home. Most folks, wild caught salmon, it's very likely from there. That's right. It's very likely to come from Bristol Bay. Now, there are more famous fisheries like, you know, the Copper River. Uh, people talk about that sure. fishery. And part of the reason that, that that's such a highly desired salmon is that it, it, it swims a lot further. You know, it has to travel further. So when it enters the uh, the estuary before it goes up into the river, the fish are bigger and fatter, and and the the Bristol Bay fish aren't as uh, you know commercially valuable, but they're the heart of our of our nation's uh, of our world's really uh, sockeye fishery. So anyway, um, it was as I mentioned, it was really the coming together in a really positive way of commercial fishing interests, conservation interests, and local pe people. Um, and we were all on the same page for 15 years. And our role at TU was basically uh, to try to engage as many sportsmen and women. NWF played a big role in that, as you know, Aaron. Um, the outdoor industry was tremendous. You know, companies like Orvis um, and Sims and, and a lot of our other partners, they all made their voices heard in a really positive way. And uh, ultimately, even the Alaska delegation came out against the mine in the very end, which was you know, frankly, unheard of. The you know, Alaska, as I mentioned, it's a very pro-development state. 
the, the, the company that wanted to mine it was a little company in uh, Canada called uh, Northern Dynasty. And they had never developed a mine before. And what they were after was, because it's an incredibly lucrative deposit, what they were hoping was um, uh, a major would come in and buy in into their operation. And so, uh, and they had that. At one point, they had a couple, two, three major international mining companies that had tens of millions of dollars invested in the Pebble Mine. And they pulled out because they thought it was too risky. Anglo-American, one of the largest mining companies in the world, not only pulled out of the deposit because they thought it was too risky, they forfeited $350 million in order to get out of that. And oh, wow. uh, it just it just goes to show you that there is there's no way to build a mine safely in that landscape. There's no way to have industrial scale mining of any kind in Bristol Bay if we want to keep that fishery intact. That's, yeah, that's a good way to sum it up. Talk, talk a little bit too, because there's an interface, I think, I mean, hard rock mining, how many... How many hard rock minings have, have mines have a great story where you go back and you say those are all cleaned up now and everything's fine? I mean, I, it, it's kind of unheard of, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's interesting. I want to be careful here because we actually work with a lot of mining companies to clean up abandoned mines. You know, around the West, we've got a legacy of something like half a million, if you can believe it, abandoned mines. Yeah. These are old hard rock mines that were you know mined a hundred years ago. The uh, companies that mine them are long gone, um, and nobody's on the hook to clean them up. And uh, you know, we have worked, as you as you may recall, Aaron, we've worked pretty hard to to try to create momentum to clean up abandoned mines. And we have seen some some really good action from companies like Freeport McMoran and and others who are investing in cleaning up these abandoned mines. But the fact is, you don't find very many uh, major industrial scale mines that have a happy ending when it comes to fish and wildlife. And yeah. it, it just wasn't worth the risk of, uh, you know, having, you know, a, a tailings blowout or to have, you know, Bristol Bay landscape. It's like a sponge. When you get up in an airplane and you fly over it, it's prairie pothole, prairie pothole, prairie potholes everywhere, everywhere. It's just, it's a totally wet landscape. And so one of the concerns that we had was, you know, even if they used an impervious uh, uh, material to to try to hold the tailings back, there would be some leaching of these, you know, toxins through the water system and down into the fishery. And it was just a, a, a you know, like I said, it 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 never ceases to amaze me uh, how strong greed can be in terms of motivating people. Because if there is one place that we should not mine, it's Bristol Bay. Yeah, and then, you know, and I think it, it, you know, the hard rock mining issue, by the way, I'll just give you a shout out for that because TU has done some excellent work both with the companies and, and the legacy mines. There's also, you know, beyond the big ones, there's a million little ones scattered all over the landscape, which cumulative, cumulatively can have a big effect too. And I'll give a shout out to Jason Willis, my my fellow Salidan here in Colorado. Who there you go. A, quite a bit uh, down here and, and does great work. So. But yeah, that's a big issue, and, and TU's been a leader there, both both being a collaborative leader with grabbing companies and, and other stakeholders and really doing good work. So I'll give you another shout out there. Uh, what about, so so talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of this recent development. You know, what did it take to get us here? And then now what's the next steps? What do we need to look for? What, what should folks be on the, 
on the lookout for to, to, to make sure they stay engaged as this goes further. Yeah, that's great, Aaron. You know, it's funny, I'm, I'm too close to this issue. Sometimes I, I forget that there's a whole long story that people don't really understand. So <clears throat> there were dozens of permits that the mining company would need to get to be able to build a mine of this size. And the one that we were really focused on was the federal permit. And um, it's, it's a dredge, it called a dredge and fill permit. And the Obama administration had actually tried to use their authority under the Clean Water Act to preemptorily deny the permit. So they basically took an approach under the Clean Water Act that said, this landscape isn't appropriate for large scale industrial mining. So we're going to put it off limits. And what, what happened then was the, the, uh, the uh, Pebble Limited Partnership, which is the, the name of the uh, you know, consortium that wanted to build the mine, they litigated. And um, the Trump administration decided to settle the litigation. So they basically told the, the company, all right, fine, we're going to we're not going to do this, this thing that the Obama administration wanted us you know, wanted to do. We're going to drop that, and we're going to give you three years to develop a, a plan of operation and to submit it to us for a permit under the Clean Water Act. And the company went out and they did their you know their analysis and they turned it in. They turned in this summer a uh, what they call a final environmental impact statement. It's or an FEIS if you're a former recovering bureaucrat like me. And the FEIS it basically laid out all the options and the potential risks and showed that you know several hundred miles of stream would be lost. Uh, 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 hundreds of acres of wetlands would be lost as a result of this project. You know, but it seemed that, and then the final step in the process after you do that FEIS is you have to get something called a record of decision. And there's often a lag time between the environmental analysis and the record of decision. And we were in that lag time. And, you know, part of what we were doing was, you know, and, and this was a little controversial. I'll tell you, many in the conservation community thought that we were on a quixotic mission by continuing to lobby the Trump White House. You know, we, we, we kept taking business, small business owners back to the White House. We flew tribal leaders back and had them meet with their delegation. And with the White House, we had outfitters and guides come back and meet with, you know, the delegation and, and the White House. And over time, we started hearing mutterings that, you know, this, this may be a problem. And then there was a bolt out of the blue. And I think it was in large part due to the good footwork, the good conservation footwork of groups like TU and NWF. But the bolt out of the blue was a guy by the name of Nick Ayers, who is Vice President Pence's former chief of staff. He tweeted that uh, Bristol Bay was the wrong place to build a mine. And lo and behold, a few minutes later, none other than uh, Donald Trump Jr. retweeted that and said he agreed. And, and we knew that uh, Donald Trump Jr., who is a, a you know, a member of Trout Unlimited, maybe a member of NWF for all I know. Um, he said, I, I think this is the wrong place to build a mine as well. And, um, you know, then Tucker Carlson took up the, the act from there. Tucker Carlson, who is a, a, a TU member in good standing, a very controversial radio, uh, you know, talk show host, as you know, but, but very popular and, and very popular with the president, importantly, um, he did a segment on the sh on basically talking about what a bet with Johnny Morris, of the owner of Bass Pro Shops, talking about wow. what a bad what a bad idea Pebble Mine was, and then he did a follow up with uh, Brian Kraft, who I mentioned earlier. Um, and so you know, there was a crescendo of of momentum to deny the permit, and 
what the Corps said early in the fall was, all right, we're going to – actually, it's interesting. I have it, have it right here. They said um, – uh, the Corps of Engineers finds under Section 404 of the Clean Water Act that the project as proposed would likely result in significant degradation of the environment and would likely result in significant adverse effects on the aquatic system or human environment, et cetera, et cetera. Therefore, the Corps finds that the project is currently proposed cannot be permitted under Section 404 of the Clean Water Act. And what they did was they said, uh, they said, you have to go out and do mitigation in this landscape, it's a pristine landscape that is um, of like size and kind to the degradation that the mine would cause. And, and it was almost like, you know, remember that story from high school, the, you know, the trials of Hercules and he had to clean out the Aegean stables and all that. This was a trials of Hercules size mitigation standard because it, you can't improve something that's wilderness quality. So what the government said was, you need to go show us how you're going to, uh, you know, improve what is already wilderness quality lands. And ultimately, with the with the, the, the uh, Pebble Limited Partnership, they submitted a plan. We haven't seen what they submitted, but uh, several days later, or actually it was probably about ten days later, the court came out. It was on Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Uh, the court came out and said, "We're we're denying this permit." Uh, you know, and effectively ending this chapter in the fight and now beginning the, the next step in the process. And, and I'm going to answer your question now about what people can do. What we need to do now is we need to help convince Senator Murkowski, Senator Sullivan, Congressman Young, uh, the governor, uh, that uh, that landscape is too important to be developed and come up with a long-term plan to protect the landscape and the underlying mineral deposit. It's not going anywhere. The minerals are going to stay in the ground and um, making sure that uh, we protect that place so it continues to you know, provide the benefits, the social and economic benefits it does is really important. I didn't mention this, Aaron, but that fishery supports about 17,000 jobs every year. It's like a $1.5 billion fishery. And, and that doesn't even include the sport fishing aspects, you know, the people who spend millions of dollars to fly in there and fish at these lodges, uh, nor does it include, perhaps most importantly, um, how important the fishery is to the Alaska native villages who have depended on those fish for sustenance for, for millennia. Sure. So that, that's a pretty good overview, Chris. Uh, so, you know, from, from now forward, are the, are the plans in place to kind of pitch what you mentioned to you know, decision makers, is there already folks formulating a, you know, a plan to conserve the area? Talk a little bit about where that lies and, you know, who, who's who's involved and what else needs to be done. Yeah, those are those are nascent conversations right now. It's just beginning to happen. You know, I think everybody's pedal was to the metal up until Wednesday of last, you know, less than a week ago. Um, and so, uh but we ha there have been a few folks, smart folks, who were sitting down thinking about, well, what does it look like? What are we going to do here? Is it going to be, is it going to be a land swap? Is it a cash purchase? You know, how do we, how do we make this work? And really, the the conversation that needs to happen isn't necessarily with a bunch of fast talking white guys like me. It needs to be, it needs to start with the people from, you know, King Salmon, Igiagi, Dillingham. You know those those Alaska villages that are so dependent on that fishery, they need to be the most 
the loudest voice in the room when it comes to you know options for protecting it over time. Yeah, good point. That's great. Uh, so since that hasn't happened, is there you know for for folks who want to know more? And I, I know you guys have a I can't recall exactly the name. Keep Keep Bristol Bay something. I, I don't recall exactly. You can say it, and we'll put, we'll include it in the show notes. But you know, for folks who want to learn more and see more about what's what's gone on, where should they look? They can go to a couple places. One is uh, stand up. Uh, standup.tu.org, and then you'll see a Bristol Bay, uh, you know, section in there. Uh, another one is uh, uh, savebristolbay.org. That's another good site to chock full of information. And on that stand up to you uh, page, you'll uh, you'll be able to take action and notify uh, the Alaska delegation or your member of Congress um, that you want to see Bristol Bay permanently protected, and encouraging them to you know to get engaged in that effort. Yeah, let's get that done. We have a, I know on our NWF Outdoors page, we have uh, some information about Bristol Bay as well. It's it's just one of those things that's it's just seminally important to, to conservation and to everybody that should really pay attention to this. It's it's kind of a, a harbinger for, for where we're going as a country and for conservation. If you, if you can't protect that place, boy, <laughs> we're in trouble. No, uh, I, listen, that's, that's wise. I, I, I really agree with you. I mean, this is a, uh... You know, there's a certain, there's an aspect of this that's kind of like, well, of course you won. You know, who, who's going to allow a mine to be built in a landscape that, that, that that's that important? But, you know, you could say the same thing about, you know, in the 1950s, Idaho had a two-month-long fishing season where you could keep two salmon a day from the middle fork of the Snake River. That's how prevalent the fish were. Two fish a day for two months. And now we're seeing 1% of their fish make it back. You know, who would have thought that we would have had that incredible abundance and richness just 50, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, I guess. And then, and then come up with this idea that, hey, maybe we ought to build some concrete monoliths and put them right in the middle of the river system and, and we'll see what happens with the fish. Well, you know, we know that that hasn't been such a good news story. So it's important to stay vigilant. You know, I mean, I think sometimes we... Uh, you know, one of the dangers of conservation is that, you know, we're, we're really overseeing loss in many ways. And it's, it's easy to become uh, despondent or negative or cynical in the face of, you know, managing loss, whether it's loss of wild fish or native species or open space, you know, water quality, name, name your issue. Um, and so uh, it, it's really important when we get these victories like this one that we take the time and we celebrate it. And, and the fact that, um, you know, it happened on opening week of deer season was a, a great blessing for me because it was one less thing to bother me as I should have been scanning the woods for big bucks. <laughs> yeah, and a very, a very good thing to be thankful for over the holiday there. Amen. Chris, so is there any scenario by which, you know, you see this reviving and, and having a chance to be a mine still? Or do we, you know, I know, you said we have to stay diligent and, and vigilant, and obviously we do. But, I mean, it seems like every time it comes up, it, it's it's another nail in the coffin. And I, I want to hear finally that it's the final nail. I think we all do. So just, just talk about, is there any chance? Well, you know, it's like I said earlier, you know, greed is a, incredibly strong motivating factor for people. Um, it is an incredibly rich deposit. The reason they call it the pebble deposit is that it's not like many traditional 
bodies of ore that are kind of found in seams in the ground. This is it's it's a highly mineralized area that's spread across acres and acres and acres of land. And so you really have to develop the entire landscape, but it's incredibly mineralized. I mean, there are there are tons of gold and copper and silver in there. And so, you know, as long as people have the ability to uh, potentially, you know, put a permit together uh, to build a mine there, you know, we've got to remain, uh, you know, eyes wide open. And I think, you know, it's funny because, you know, you've seen those stickers with the, you know, the circle and it's the pebble on it and then, this, you know, a line through it. Well, we've become really fixated on, on the pebble mine, but it's not about the pebble mine so much as it is saving Bristol Bay. And, and, and that's that next step that I talked about. That's going to, and I think everyone, Aaron, understands how important this is. And, you know, that, that frankly, a fly-by-night two-bit mining company from Canada came within, you know, a signature on a record of decision of being able to build one of the most offensive mines in the history of the country uh, is, 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 should be motivating for most people to realize that we've got to finish the job and we've got to, that's state-owned land and we have to figure out how to work with the state to protect that land. Yeah, that's a good segue too, Chris, because one other thing I wanted to ask you about was just, you know, the flagship fishery here that's really supporting a lot of the salmon across the, the Northwest coast and the state of salmon in general, you touched on it a little bit, but some of the dwindling numbers we're seeing salmon and steelhead and some of the issues. And can you talk about that a little bit and place, you know, give some more context with the importance of if you have this pristine place protected, how much more that, that staves off some of the other problems? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, um, I don't know if it, it staves it off, but it should be a wake up call is what it should be. You know, in 1991, there was a seminal paper that came out in, in, in the Journal of the American Fisheries Society. It was called Salmon at a Crossroads. And uh, the, the authors, uh, it was uh, uh, Jack Williams, uh, Will and Nelson, and Jim Lickitowich. They said that we've already lost 214 stocks of, of salmon, and they identified hundreds that were at risk of extinction. And that was in the 90s. The situation has only gotten worse and it's being, it's, it's being compounded now by climate change. You know, these, you think about the Snake River Basin, you know, what, what we've done is we've created these lethally hot bathtubs in, in these rivers and it's riverine environment. These fish don't, when they're, when they make their migration out to the ocean, they're not really swimming out to the ocean. They're being flushed by the river. And so what happens is when you get these reservoirs behind these dams, like on the lower Snake River, the fish get backed up there. And the water can become lethally hot, and it makes the fish that much more vulnerable to predators. You know, walleye, uh, birds, you know, pinnipeds. There's a whole host of of, of things that make them, uh, they can become, they can be preyed on by. And um, again, you know, we have this incredible fishery in Bristol Bay. 60 million fish a couple of years ago were caught there. You know, it's a $17 billion industry. Industry. uh, I'm sorry, 17,000 uh, jobs every year and a billion and a half dollar industry. And, and all we have to do to leave it that way is just to leave it alone. Um, you, you look at the, the comparison of what's happening in the Columbian Snake Rivers, where most salmon and steelhead are either listed or proposed for listing under the Endangered Species Act, which is the law that we use to basically 
keep fi- keep fish and wildlife on life support while we try to figure out how to recover. Almost every one of those fish are listed. And in Bristol Bay, you've got this incredibly vibrant, healthy fishery. And, and we just, all we have to do is leave it alone to keep it intact. Yeah, and uh, salmon is already, as you said, a kind of an all hands on deck issue. You know, we, in the Federation family, we have a few affiliates up there, Conservation Northwest, Steelheaders, uh, and uh, Idaho Wildlife Federation who are working tons on those dams and there've been some new developments. I'm, I'm glad to see that. I know TU's leading the way on a bunch of that too. So I'm, I'm glad to see that. And I'm hoping one day we can get back up there and fish salmon where they used to be and, and celebrate that victory too, Chris. Amen. And I'm going to, I'm going to give you a chance to do a parting shot. You've been very gracious with your time and I'm going to try to let you go here, but uh, just give me a parting shot. What should people, what should people be thinking about as we move forward and, and I'll make mine and then I'll, I'll bid you farewell, my man. Yeah, that's great, Aaron. Well, I think my parting shot will be less of a shot than just a, a big note of thanks because NWF is one of Trout Unlimited's best partners. And whether it's uh, Bristol Bay, NWF, NWF is the lead litigant on the uh, Snake River, basically to remove those dams or, or cleaning up abandoned mines, passing Good Samaritan legislation to make cleaning up abandoned mines easier. NWF has been a just a tremendous partner to TU and um it's been a real honor for me to be on your show and to talk to your members, Aaron, and uh, great to hear your voice and see your face again, too. You too, sir. And I, I, I would just agree with you. First off, we've been great partners. I continue to work with with a lot of your excellent staff there at TU and, and I'm just happy I get to keep doing that and keep those relationships alive, even as I, I'm over here at NWF now. And I guess I would just tell our listeners, you know, if you love salmon, you love wild places, you, you know, you want to be able to fish salmon in your lifetime, you know, take care of these places, follow this campaign. We'll put up links to, uh, to the campaign that Chris talked about earlier and some other stuff folks can connect with and uh, just take care of these places and, and know places like Bristol Bay, they, they don't make new ones. So take care of them and help out as, as you can. That's great. You know, there's a, a book, this, uh, why we need a free flowing lower snake river. I'll send you a link to this Aaron. I bet you're, uh, yeah your listeners and your viewers would really enjoy it. It's a great science-based document about why we need to take out those four lower snake river dams. Yeah. Send, send me any links you want and we'll put them in the show notes and we'll get this, this baby posted. So folks know right away, they've got something to celebrate and, and how they can get engaged. And Fantastic. just thanks again. Thanks again, Chris. Excellent to, to see your face and talk to you. And, and thank you so much for your time and all the good work. Thanks, Aaron. You too. Talk to you again soon. I hope. Yes, sir. Take care. All right. Bye-bye now. We are NWF Outdoors.